The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. Please take your seat for the fight of the century. This is Thursday, May 3rd, 2018. Thank you very much for your time and for supporting this independent news through the links for my sponsors and through the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. I'll be your ringside announcer in this fight of the century. Advancing from one corner, Donald Trump and his ever-changing lawyers, and advancing from the opposite corner, the highest levels of law enforcement in the United States. No one's landed a punch yet, but these heavyweight boxers are in the ring and they're sparring. There's a lot at stake in that ring. Both fighters are tense. Reporters who cover the nation's capital say they can feel the tension. Trump, at last count, had tweeted 14 times in a span of six days, slamming the Russia investigation and those connected with it. One of the most recent calls the obstruction of justice investigation a setup and a trap. Another, in a flurry of four yesterday, threatened to, quote, use the powers granted to the presidency and get involved. Trump throws a right hook and the gloves are off. Trump's lawyers are reportedly working on a fierce defense and with good reason. Prosecutors have taken a couple of unexpected swings at Trump this week. Nobody expected the usually quiet deputy attorney general to say anything, much less that he won't allow the United States Department of Justice to be extorted. Rod Rosenstein was talking about the Tea Party Republicans in Congress, the ones who now call themselves the Freedom Caucus. They've put together what they believe are articles of impeachment for Mr. Rosenstein. Not a single member of the Freedom Caucus has put his name on the measure, but it's written and ready. Republicans working behind the scenes to protect this president stand ready to impeach the top law enforcement official who oversees the Russia investigation, which rightfully bothers Trump so much. But now, speaking publicly for the first time in a long time, Rod Rosenstein has come out swinging. He said members of the so-called Freedom Caucus had threatened him publicly and privately, and that he's been getting these threats for, quote, quite some time. Publicly, the head of the caucus has called Rosenstein's impeachment an option. Rosenstein added that the DOJ would not be extorted, the nation's second most powerful law enforcement official accusing Republicans in Congress of attempted extortion. He also called them cowards for not putting their names on their drawn-up impeachment papers. In Rosenstein's words, threats that anybody makes are not going to affect how we do our job. And Rosenstein's done more than speak. With a left hook, he okayed a subpoena of the president, something he can only do if he has enough evidence. Running the day-to-day Trump-Russia investigation is special counsel Robert Mueller. After clearing it with Rosenstein, after showing Rosenstein the evidence, Mueller threatened to force Trump to testify under oath before a grand jury with a subpoena. Mueller did that in response to a declaration by Trump's lawyers that the president had no obligation to submit to an interview. That was three weeks ago. That's when the relationship got even more tense. Trump's top Russia lawyer at the time, John Dowd, went ballistic upon hearing Mueller's threat. This isn't some game, said Dowd, adding, you're screwing with the work of the president of the United States. There's nothing new about this. Clinton was subpoenaed in the Paula Jones case and threatened with a subpoena in the Lewinsky mess and impeached, but not removed from office, all for lying about all of that under oath. Nixon was subpoenaed, forcing him to turn over to prosecutors the Oval Office tape recordings that brought impeachment and a resignation in disgrace. 
Trump has said repeatedly he was eager for that interview to put the Russia investigation behind him. Lawyers led by the now resigned John Dowd did everything in their power, given his tendency to lie and his tendency to incriminate himself. Then the FBI seized the documents of Trump's personal attorney, Michael Cohen, and that's when the real tension began. Trump angrily cut off the negotiations for that sit-down, and he'd stopped saying he was eager for that interview. Trump recently hired Rudy Giuliani to his Russia defense team, and Giuliani immediately went to work on restarting the talks with Mueller. As mentioned earlier, those talks got testy. That's when Mueller supplied Trump's lawyers with a verbal listing of 16 topic areas, which Trump lawyer Jay Sekulow jotted down in the form of 49 questions. The Mueller team says it needs to ask the president these questions, which would no doubt lead to more detailed follow-up questions. Staring at that list, whether you're Trump or Trump's lawyer, had to be breathtaking in a bad way. We have reports that Trump still partly wants to do that interview to try to get all this into his rearview mirror. That's why John Dowd quit as Trump's top Russia lawyer. Dowd had just seen this list of Mueller's questions and listened to his client saying he still wants to do that interview. Today, Trump's lawyers, even Giuliani, are likely more concerned than ever. Robert Mueller has made it clear he needs to ask these questions of Trump face-to-face or Trump will face a subpoena pitting the country's Justice Department against the President of the United States. Not that it's unexpected, but it would appear that a constitutional crisis is now upon us. So what might happen? Trump, whether he talks voluntarily or under oath, is likely to incriminate himself. Mueller already knows the answers to some of the questions he needs to ask. If the president lies, he faces perjury charges. If Trump pleads the fifth, he faces political problems that are likely insurmountable, which is the case with all his choices. And if he fights the subpoena, as we are hearing he will do, that fight could delay the end of the investigation by months as it worms its way through the court system. The case could get expedited, fast-tracked, but would likely land at the Supreme Court where Trump would likely lose his appeal. You see, the court may lean conservative, but every precedent ever set by the highest court in this land says it is legal to subpoena a president, and these justices are not likely to change that course. If he ever has occasion to answer them, Bob Mueller has many questions, many of the same questions you and I have for the president of the United States. We know Mueller's questions, not because they were leaked by the special counsel's investigation of Trump and Russia. There have been no leaks from that investigation. We don't know exactly who did leak them, but we know these are the questions the Mueller team has told the president's lawyer he wants to ask. Three weeks ago, as negotiations did get testy for that Trump interview, Trump's lawyers were given this list of starter questions, topics about which Mueller wants answers, stuff you might ask, and more. Here are the most notable questions to the president. What made you delay and then decide to fire National Security Advisor Mike Flynn nearly three weeks after the White House learned he had been compromised by Russia? Did you or anyone in the administration discuss immunity or a pardon for Flynn? What are your thoughts on former FBI Director James Comey? What did you think of his congressional testimony? And what's the real reason you fired him since you've offered conflicting reasons? And why did you tell Russian officials the next day in your office it took the pressure off of you? Why did you say Comey better hope there are no tapes of your conversations with him? What did you do and say regarding Attorney General Jeff Sessions' recusal from the Russia probe? What was your reaction to the appointment of a special counsel, and what have you said about terminating him? 
Specifically, when did you learn about the Trump Tower meeting between your son, your son-in-law, your campaign manager, and Russians, including a Kremlin informant? What part did you play in the crafting of a statement about the purpose of the Trump Tower meeting? What communication did you have with Russian officials during your 2013 trip to Moscow? What did you know during the campaign about Russian hacking and Russia's use of social media in that campaign? What did you know about contact between WikiLeaks and your advisor, Roger Stone? What discussions did you have about the sanctions against Russia? And what, if any, part did you play in changing the Republican platform to be less harsh with Russia? And that's just a dozen of the more than four dozen topics for which Mueller wants answers. More than a dozen of the questions deal with the issue of collusion. The rest deal with the obstruction of justice investigation, mostly. And Mueller's questions appear to contain new information, or at least new hints about what Mueller's considering. One I had not yet listed concerns what Trump may have known about outreach by Paul Manafort to Russia about helping the campaign. Wait a minute. We've heard numerous reports Russia had reached out to the campaign offering help, this is the first we've heard of a possible effort by the campaign to reach out to Russia. I had listed the other newsmaking question. What did you know about Russian hacking and Russian use of social media during the campaign? And that question is about collusion. Trump campaign aide George Papadopoulos had been told that Russia had compromising emails on Clinton while Trump was begging Russia to, quote, find Clinton's emails. Trump-Russia lawyer Rudy Giuliani dropped huge revelations last night on Sean Hannity's show that may hurt Trump more than they were intended to help him. It was on Fox News last night. Giuliani revealed that although Trump's personal lawyer Michael Cohen did pay Stormy Daniels 130k in hush money out of his own pocket, Cohen was repaid by Donald Trump. Giuliani was trying to show that Cohen had not, as suspected, made an illegal contribution to the Trump campaign. Instead, though... Giuliani proved the president was lying to the American people on camera in the official trappings of Air Force One when he said he knew nothing about Cohen's payment to Stormy Daniels. Trump also denied knowing where Cohen got the 130K. Cohen got it from him. But wait, there's more. Giuliani also perhaps foolishly revealed that Trump repaid the 130000 hush money to Cohen over time. If the repayments were structured small enough each time to stay under the government's banking radar, that's a felony. But wait, there's still more. Giuliani also revealed the money was, quote, funneled through a law firm. In so doing, Giuliani may have implicated both Cohen and Trump in bank fraud and or money laundering more felonies. And even if Trump paid Cohen back, it's still an illegal unreported campaign contribution by Mr. Cohen. And if it was just a loan from Cohen to Trump, was there interest? And where are the papers for that loan? The money appears to have been filtered through a firm that Cohen had set up to help conceal the transfer of the money to protect Trump. Stormy Daniels' lawyer described himself as speechless on this news, something Stormy Daniels' lawyer usually is not. But Michael Avenetti did find the words. The quote, According to Mr. Giuliani, Mr. Trump and Mr. Cohen were co-conspirators in a felony. Giuliani had made it clear there to Hannity's viewers that with Ty Cobb gone, there'll be no more cooperation with the Russia investigation, but rather a fight. Maybe the fight of the century. It was in that same interview last night, by the way, in which Giuliani called James Comey, a man Giuliani hired and once called his friend, 
He called Comey a pathological liar who should be prosecuted. That echoes Trump's tweet saying Comey should go to jail. The investigations into Trump and Cohen and Paul Manafort continue, meanwhile, as the opponents in this fight dance around the ring, taking swings. White House Russia lawyer Ty Cobb is out, replaced now by Clinton's impeachment lawyer Emmett Flood. Until things got heated, Ty Cobb had gingerly handled the relationship between Mueller and Trump, but now Trump may have finally gotten the lawyer he needs in Emmett Flood. Ty Cobb played nice with Mueller. Emmett Flood, we are told, will not. Aside from his experience on the Clinton case, Flood is a former special counsel from the Bush administration and is now a veteran defense attorney for those accused of white-collar crimes. The lawyer change comes after word got out about Mueller's subpoena threat. Tension over this fight of the century is building. Ty Cobb was let go by Trump lawyer Jay Sekulow and Rudy Giuliani, who says it was just time for him to go after Ty Cobb had spent less than a year on the job. Trump was tweeting last month that he was very happy with his legal team, including Ty Cobb, after reports Trump was not happy with his legal team. Trump called those stories false even while he was interviewing Emmett Flood to replace Ty Cobb. After what Rudy Giuliani admitted last night, Giuliani may already be on the Trump lawyer endangered list. Speaking again of ring fights, you never know where the Trump-Russia investigation will take us next, what bizarre turn it might make in any given week. So we should not be surprised to learn that in that investigation, the FBI has now interviewed a mixed martial arts fighter who has ties to Russia's Vladimir Putin, to Donald Trump, and to his lawyer Michael Cohen. The G-men met with Fedor Emelianenko in his hotel room just before a heavyweight fight. The MMA fighter's manager says the agents were, quote, very nice, very professional. After the FBI agents finished their interview with Emelianenko, they went downstairs and watched him fight Frank Mir and win. Vladimir Putin has also seen Fedor fight. Trump once owned part of a league in which Emelianenko fought, and Michael Cohen was that league's chief operating officer. The FBI is investigating Cohen's business dealings, and apparently this is one of them. Welcome to 2018, where nothing is normal. A lot of people's suspicions prove true about Natalia Veselnitskaya. She is a spy. To the best of our knowledge, she was merely a Russian lawyer in New York who appeared to have vague ties to the Kremlin initially. That's certainly how the Trump campaign has spoken of her. On the rare occasions, it's addressed the Trump Tower meeting in 2016 between her, other Russians, and Trump's son, son-in-law, and campaign manager. According to emails in the hands of special counsel Robert Mueller, the purpose of that meeting in the eager mind of Donald Trump Jr. was to get Russian-gathered dirt on Hillary Clinton to help dad's campaign. Team Trump had tried to explain away the meeting by claiming it was about adopting Russian children. A lie, based on the evidence. Now, however, Natalia Veseltskaya admits that she is what so many of us suspected, a Russian spy. In her words, an informant. In an NBC News interview on Friday, Veseltskaya admitted being a very close informant for a specific high-ranking Russian government official. And there are now emails to document that, which is perhaps why Veseltskaya has also changed her story. After the election, the Russians followed up on that Trump Tower meeting, we now know. 
CNN reports that Veselnitskaya and a Russian oligarch who was also in that Trump Tower meeting during the campaign had later reached out to Trump's presidential transition team, still trying to get the U.S. to dump the sanctions imposed after the invasion of Ukraine and interference in the 2016 campaign. And then came the confession. Again, inspired by watching Fox and Friends, Trump picked up a phone and called the show. It was, like the rest of the news in Trump world, bizarre. Just a couple of weeks after denying he knew anything about the Stormy Daniels hush money paid by Michael Cohen, Trump told his TV friends, quote, Michael represents me, like with this crazy Stormy Daniels deal, he represents me. The porn star's lawyer says Trump had just committed, quote, a hugely damaging admission. Trump apparently also accidentally admitted that much of what the FBI seized in its raid of Cohen's files and emails is not covered by attorney-client privilege, as Trump had also previously claimed. As a percentage of my overall legal work, a tiny, tiny fraction, he said. These are the words that Trump spoke to the hosts of the Fox News Channel's morning show. Trump was all over the map throughout that phone call, denying charges he'd lied about spending a night or two in Russia, attacking Comey, the media, and the Russia probe again, praising his own accomplishments, and saying that Michael Cohen only took the fifth to protect his businesses. But it was Trump's first interview in over a month, and he had a lot to say. And he said it in a way that seemed to many to be maniacal. The more Trump talked, those who watched clearly saw the Fox News host struggling to get him to hang up after he'd already said too much. Yes, as you've just heard, Trump lawyer Michael Cohen has invoked his Fifth Amendment right not to testify in the Stormy Daniels case to avoid incriminating himself. Daniels is suing Cohen for defaming her character by portraying her as a liar in her claims against Trump. Giuliani's admission on Fox last night, by the way, proves that Stormy was right. Specifically, Mr. Cohen is trying to avoid self-incrimination in the, quote, ongoing criminal investigation by the FBI and the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York. That Cohen's taking the fifth is a stunning development, in the words of Stormy Daniels' lawyer. Quoting Michael Avenatti again, Never before in our nation's history has the attorney for a sitting president invoked the Fifth Amendment in connection with issues surrounding the president. It is especially stunning seeing as Michael Cohen served as the fixer for Mr. Trump for over 10 years. Cohen has also asked that the lawsuit against him by Stormy Daniels be delayed 90 days, and that request, which is common in these situations, has been granted. Daniels' lawyer is appealing that decision. California Congressman Devin Nunes has not kept hidden his allegiance to Donald Trump and his disdain for Obama, Clinton, and even the government's own Justice Department. As head of the currently ironically named House Intelligence Committee, Nunes is supported in his efforts by the fellow Republicans who make up the majority of that committee. And although the Mueller investigation isn't over yet, Nunes' committee has reached its final conclusions about Trump, Russia, and the people investigating them both. To the surprise of no one, that report concludes that the Trump campaign did not conspire with Russians to squirrel the 2016 election and that the FBI has bungled and twisted the entire thing. At least the Republican report does admit Russian interference, but it claims the Russians were simply sowing the seeds of discord in our politics without taking a side, without helping Trump and hurting Clinton, as the evidence has indicated. The Republican-written report brought no new information to light. In spite of our knowledge that the FBI investigation began after an Australian diplomat alerted U.S. intelligence he'd heard a Trump campaign aide say he had Russian-gathered dirt on Hillary, 
Republicans still cling to their false claim that the investigation began with the Steele dossier, which accurately outlined at least some of the dirt that Russia had collected on Trump. The Republican report says the Trump campaign aides who had met with Russians about dirt on Hillary were peripheral figures and that neither was in a position to influence Trump or his top campaign officials. The report does throw Mike Flynn further under the bus, citing an email he'd written just before the WikiLeaks dump of stolen Democratic emails. The Republican report says there's no evidence that Roger Stone had been tipped off by WikiLeaks when Stone predicted that Democratic Party emails were about to be made public. And it says there's no evidence the Trump campaign got any dirt on Clinton in that Trump Tower meeting and that one of the participants had testified that he'd lied about that just to get Don Jr. to show up. The Republican report saying that the Russia thing is over and that there's nothing to see here was everything that Trump had hoped for, everything Nunes had hoped for Trump. It gave Trump a chance to use the all-caps key again and tweet that the witch hunt must end now. Democrats on the House Intelligence Committee begged to differ. They didn't offer anything new either in their minority report, their rebuttal to what the committee's Republican majority had to say. The leading Democrat on that committee, California's Adam Schiff, says he'll wait for the Mueller report. The House Intelligence Committee has been troubled, to put it politely, for about a year as they battle with Chairman Nunes, who was an advisor to the Trump transition team and supports Trump at every congressional turn. Nunes has been so enthusiastic about his pro-Trump efforts, he even had to recuse himself from the Intelligence Committee's Russia investigation for a while, using his time instead to look for evidence that the FBI was the evil source of Trump's troubles. Nunes' efforts had earlier included slipping onto the White House grounds at night to get a document to support Trump's false claim that Obama had wiretapped Trump Tower. Nunes returned to the White House in the daylight that followed, dragging TV cameras with him, waving a document he said would prove Trump's wiretapping claim. Nunes wanted the world to know he was taking Trump proof that Trump was right about the wiretapping, even though it was a document that Nunes had just gotten from the Trump administration in the dark of night before. And it wasn't true. In the minds of Democrats and others, the Intelligence Committee report isn't true either. Former FBI Director James Comey calls the Republican report a wreck, saying it's damaged the important relationship between Congress and the intelligence community. Among the lasting effects, also alienating the secretive federal court that grants warrants to spy on foreigners. When asked on Meet the Press about whether the Republican report served a good investigative purpose, Comey replied, not that I can say. In other news about the Trump-Russia case, a federal judge has now thrown out the lawsuit former campaign chairman Paul Manafort had filed against special counsel Robert Mueller. Mueller has already investigated Manafort's work as a lobbyist for Russian interest in Ukraine and Manafort's attempt to hide millions of dollars he made doing that work. Manafort's partner in that work, Richard Gates, has pleaded guilty and is cooperating with prosecutors while Manafort sticks to his not guilty plea. Manafort argued Mueller has no right to investigate his business dealings when they don't, in Manafort's view, have any direct connection to the 2016 presidential campaign. But a judge has ruled against Paul Manafort. And now the case against Trump's former campaign manager continues to go forward. Despite his vows to stop it, as outlined here last week, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell may not be able to stop a bipartisan bill to protect Bob Mueller's job. Trump has said he has the authority to fire Mueller. 
but backed by members of both parties, including Republicans Chuck Grassley, Lindsey Graham, Tom Tillis, and Jeff Flake. The bill would prohibit the president from firing Mueller, quote, without just cause for reasons submitted to Congress in writing. And now the bill has passed the Senate Judiciary Committee on a vote of 14 to 7. It's called the Special Counsel Independence and Integrity Act, written by Republicans and Democrats in both the House and the Senate. But right now, it's just a lonely old bill up on Capitol Hill. As it stands, neither House of Congress has enough votes to pass that bill. But that could change. Nobody expected that bill to get this far with the support of members of both parties. And the bill will still be around after the midterm elections that are expected to change the majority of control in the House and very possibly the Senate. And Cambridge Analytica, the company that misappropriated the personal data of 87 million Facebook users while working for the Trump campaign, is filing for bankruptcy with plans to shut down in the United States and the United Kingdom. Cambridge Analytica says business is down since the data mining revelation and the release of undercover videos outlining the wide-ranging nature of the company's undercover political work. The company's also been under the scrutiny of special counsel Robert Mueller. It's the same company that gave Trump lock her up, build the wall, and drain the swamp. That was Cambridge Analytica's work. Those phrases were not originally Trump's. They were recommended to him by the researchers at Cambridge Analytica who had taken your data. Now, the company is history in this country and in Britain. Facebook, meanwhile, says it's adding a new delete history feature to its website in the coming months. The strange case of Dr. Harold Bornstein, the NRA takes cover. Korea, Iran, and a Bob Seska commentary after this. These days, we have to pay for something we used to get free, the news. This news comes to you without a paywall and without corporate ownership, and it's free. So again, a quick reminder here to do your online shopping by using and bookmarking the Amazon link at buzzburbank.com. This production gets a small commission from Amazon when you do that, so it's very helpful to shop through that link for home, school, church, or office. Now, if you'd prefer not to use my Amazon link for any reason, please support this free newscast through the PayPal Donate button just beneath the Amazon button at buzzburbank.com, and I thank you. And there's one other odd thing that deserves our attention. It's about Trump's personal doctor, the one he saw for 35 years before becoming president. Dr. David Bornstein, who'd written an exaggerated positive assessment of Trump's health before the election, says thugs broke into the back door of his office on February 3rd of last year, pushing aside a patient and taking all of Trump's medical records. They did not show Dr. Bornstein any HIPAA patient privacy forms with Trump's signature indicating that Trump had okayed the transfer of this personal information. Bornstein says the trio was led by Trump's personal bodyguard, one-time Trump aide Keith Schiller. Accompanying Schiller, says Bornstein, was another big guy and one of Trump's corporate lawyers. They stayed for nearly a half hour. The doctor says he was frightened by these henchmen. They asked Bornstein to take down from his wall the framed 8x10 photo of him and Trump together. Dr. Bornstein still hasn't put that picture back on the wall. Longtime Trump assistant Rona Graff called Bornstein to tell him to forget his dream of becoming the president's White House doctor. Bornstein got that call two days 
after the New York Times ran a story about the removal of Ronnie Jackson as Trump's White House doctor. A scorned Bornstein had told the New York Times he had prescribed cholesterol and rosacea drugs for Trump and for years, Propecia, a hair growth medicine. Two days later, three men representing Trump allegedly conducted a raid on Bornstein's office and removed all of Trump's files without the proper papers and told him to take down the picture. After that story was published about Trump's hair growth medicine. And as the White House tries to discredit the man who was Trump's doctor for 35 years, Bornstein says his pre-election assessment of Trump's health was a fraud, one he played along with tongue-in-cheek. He dictated that whole letter, says Bornstein. Trump had been pushing on the campaign trail the falsehood that Hillary Clinton was in poor health, too poor to serve out a presidency. Simultaneously, Trump had gotten his doctor to write that his own health was astonishingly excellent, adding, quote, Mr. Trump, I can state unequivocally, will be the healthiest individual ever elected to the presidency. Bornstein's revelation raises questions about the declaration by former White House doctor Ronnie Jackson that with Trump's genes, he could live to be 200. Now, two of Trump's former doctors have been discarded under a bus. And quoting the long-haired, multiple-neck-chain-wearing Dr. Bornstein, do I look like the man who wants to be the White House doctor? Bornstein says he was hoping he wouldn't be asked. Dr. Ronnie Jackson still works in the White House medical office, but he is no longer the president's doctor, and he won't be running the Veterans Administration. Jackson pulled out of the running, disputing charges of drinking on the job, freely dispensing prescription pills, abusive behavior, and more. Jackson had served as presidential doctor for two other presidents, Obama and W. He was to have replaced David Shulkin, who resigned under ethics allegations, although Shulkin says it was because he opposes privatizing the VA. We have since learned that the doctor for Vice President Pence had alerted the White House last fall that Dr. Ronnie Jackson had also violated federal privacy HIPAA protections for Pence's wife, Karen. In other words... The White House has known Jackson was a problem since last September, and yet Trump nominated Jackson to serve as the head of the second biggest agency in government. None of this comes as any surprise to Salon.com's Bob Seska. Thank you, Buzz. Rarely do I ever complain about my work. Frankly, I feel quite lucky that I get to do what I love every single day. However, sometimes it's a lonely job observing American politics and reporting back to you about what I'm seeing. The specific downside is that I'll occasionally sift through a series of news items attempting to dovetail everything I read into common themes, and occasionally my conclusions might be pegged as outlandish or even careening into the realms of tinfoil hat conspiracy theories. Again, this is a rare exception and not the rule, but it's still a lonely place. I'm seldom married to some of my theories, which I believe is one of the many details that separates me from crackpots and mad prophets. In my defense, though, most of my ideas fall squarely into the realms of logical reality, I hope, after being funneled through various mental filters. Sometimes, though, my experience covering politics and my sense of history will trigger a gut reaction to an event. My instincts will often give me a hint about what's going on long before the actual facts on the ground. Not always, but often enough. In fact, my instincts are particularly calibrated to Donald Trump's bullshit. Not as a consequence of my experience with liars and thieves, but because Trump's motives and actions are so utterly obvious, it's impossible sometimes to restrain my gut from seeing right through his gibberish, his grandstanding, and his lies. 
When Trump's general practitioner, Dr. Harold Bornstein, issued a letter about Trump's personal health back in 2015, I knew exactly what the truth was. I knew right away that it was horseshit. Trump clearly dictated the letter to Bornstein, I thought. It's written using Trump's flair for hyperbole and superlatives and doesn't reflect the technical language of a typical doctor. Furthermore, Trump's health statistics released by Bornstein in 2016 were likewise falsified to make Trump seem healthier than he was or is. It's been my contention since December 2015 that Trump and Trump's doctor were lying about Trump's health in a scandal rivaling the season two and three plotline of the West Wing, in which President Bartlett's multiple sclerosis was concealed from the public. In case you haven't seen that show yet, spoiler warning, the attorney general appoints a special prosecutor to investigate the president, eventually leading to a congressional censure. Enter Dr. Ronnie Jackson, the Navy Rear Admiral who served as the president's personal physician and head of the White House Medical Unit since the George W. Bush administration. Jackson also seems to have repeated Bornstein's falsification of Trump's health. Jackson, during a presser in which he outlined Trump's physical condition, appeared pale, sweaty, and nervous, not the poise you'd expect from an admiral or a medical professional. He looked like he was lying and the information he was dishing out to the press was just as hyperbolic and superlative as Bornstein's assessment. When Jackson's nomination to run the Department of Veterans Affairs collapsed in an avalanche of sordid legal issues involving anger management problems, the distribution of controlled substances, the undocumented prescribing of opioids, and the admiral's own booze consumption, I wondered whether Trump blackmailed Jackson so that he'd acquiesce to falsifying Trump's health, just like Bornstein had. I also wondered whether Trump has been a regular customer of the Candyman's goodies. By the way, I've also theorized that Trump routinely slams Adderall or similar to work himself into a motor mouth lather before rallies and TV appearances. We later learned that Jackson has given out Provigil to White House staffers. Provigil is a cognitive enhancer, not unlike Adderall. Crazy conspiracy theory territory, right? It turns out, though, I was right about Trump dictating his own medical report to Dr. Bornstein. During an interview with CNN this week, Bornstein described a harrowing scene in which Trump's goon squad, including Trump's personal Mike Ehrmantraut, Keith Schiller, raided Bornstein's office and stole Trump's medical records without a release or any official documentation. Furthermore, Bornstein revealed that Trump, in fact, wrote the 2015 letter. I have no idea of falsifying such a statement as illegal, but I wouldn't be shocked if that were the case. Nevertheless, it should be noted that this isn't the first time Bornstein outed Trump as the actual author of the note. In late August of 2016, Bornstein told NBC News that Trump dictated the letter to Bornstein as Trump waited outside in his limo. In other words, this is actually old news. But only now is the press finally taking a harder look at these revelations. And Ronnie Jackson ought to be next in the hot seat. How much of his public evaluation of Trump's health was fabricated and how much of it was real? And I still want to know what really happened to Trump during his Jerusalem remarks in which he was badly slurring his speech. The press has a duty to find out exactly why Trump is hiding his actual medical condition. Is it vanity or something more serious like a fatal disease or substance abuse? In terms of the latter, we know that Trump is apparently taking both Propecia for hair loss and statins for cholesterol, both of which can cause low energy as an unwanted side effect. Is he taking something to give him additional energy beyond the caffeine in his Diet Cokes? What is Trump hiding? 
Sure, it's Trump's personal health. He's entitled to privacy, but he's also the president with a nuclear biscuit in his pocket and the fate of the world economy in his stumpy hands. A mood disorder or drug dependence could lead to calamities impacting all of us. Furthermore, what are the consequences of a president who falsifies his medical records? The fictitious Bartlett White House almost collapsed under the weight of a similar scandal. What will happen to Trump, though? Probably nothing, unless, of course, it's taken seriously by the press. Even then, it might not get enough air given the daily fire hose of Trump news. Regardless, my gut has been right about Trump far more often than wrong, even on the crazy stuff. But I'd feel better about it if it wasn't so unnerving. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thank you, Bob. Get more of him at Salon.com and every Tuesday and Thursday on The Bob Seska Show at RealmNetwork.com. Join me with him there every Tuesday. Because of today's big news developments, be sure and listen to Bob's show today. Also fired this past week, of all people, the chaplain of the House of Representatives. The exiting Paul Ryan, invoking his authority as Speaker of the House, says he let Father Patrick Conroy go because he says the father had failed to comfort members of Congress in need. The fact that the father had also offered a morning prayer to a Republican majority that reminded them that, quote, the institutions of our great nation guarantee the opportunities that have allowed some to achieve great success while others continue to struggle. The prayer continued. May their efforts guarantee there are not winners and losers under the new tax laws, but benefits balanced and shared by all Americans. But Ryan says it was the comforting thing that got the chaplain his walking papers. Father Conroy got the job from Paul Ryan's Republican predecessor, John Boehner. Scott Pruitt, as we speak, is still the head of the Environmental Protection Agency. He is also, as we speak, the focus of an investigation by the EPA's Inspector General for his lavish spending of taxpayer money, his reported punishment of whistleblowing staff members, and Pruitt's apartment rental deal that is very likely a real conflict of interest. The Inspector General says he was asked to look into all of this by multiple members of Congress and because of complaints to the IG's hotline. The White House seems to be taking a wait-and-see approach since Pruitt's been very effective at carrying out Trump's directive to reduce government and cut regulations at the expense of the environment. As we speak, Pruitt is still running the agency even if he is being investigated for corruption and even after getting a lot of berating in two congressional hearings last week. In those hearings, Pruitt denied the additional charges of secrecy, saying, I have nothing to hide. He may not since a lot of it has already appeared in the nation's most reliable newspapers. Pruitt says those newspaper stories are twisted and do not resemble reality. Lawmakers accused Pruitt of shifting the blame to others in his agency and for dodging questions. They also called on Pruitt to resign. But as we speak, Scott Pruitt still runs the EPA and he runs it like a boss. Pruitt just yesterday received two high-profile resignations, one of them from a friend that Pruitt had brought into the agency to manage the EPA's toxic site cleanup program. Pruitt had chosen to run the Superfund, a guy who's under a lifetime ban from the banking industry for Oklahoma bank executive Albert Kelly. Also out the door at the EPA, Pascal Parada. Parada, or Nino as he's known, 
says he's retiring after setting up Pruitt's elaborate and expensive security protection and that $43,000 cone of silence phone booth for Pruitt's office and helping land that sweet 50 bucks a month condo rental near the White House. Nino is the eye of the storm of controversy that swirls around Pruitt. Important news about what the EPA is doing later in this report. Stay just a little bit longer. That's the passionate request from the New York Times editorial board made this past week when it published a piece imploring Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy not to retire just yet. There have been rumors the 81-year-old Kennedy is about to retire, quoting the New York Times, please don't go. The Times editorial board says many Republicans already consider Kennedy's departure a done deal, meaning another Supreme Court nomination from Trump. Quoting the Times piece, they smell blood. If they can install another rock-ribbed conservative like Neil Gorsuch, the court will have a locked-in right-wing majority for most of our lifetimes. Quoting the Times, they won't even have to steal it. And that, says the paper, will cause Americans to lose confidence in perhaps the only government branch they still mostly kind of trust. The Times says it's been disappointed in Justice Kennedy's rulings as often as it has been pleased, calling him an equal opportunity disappointer. But it says Kennedy is about as close to a centrist on the court as we're going to get. Among the issues still facing the court, unions and voting rights. In the race for Georgia governor, Republican Hunter Hill has aired an ad that has him holding a gun, as a number of candidates have done in ads and appearances. But Hunter Hill's campaign featured a teenaged boy playing the part of a potential boyfriend for Hill's teenage daughter. In Hill's ad, he points the gun at the teenager, compelling him to recite his allegiance to the Second Amendment. Of the uproar over the ad, Hill says, get over it. The National Rifle Association these days is busy gathering documents. It's expecting to be asked about its interactions with a Russian banker linked to the Russian government and members of the Trump campaign. Don Jr. met that Russian banker at an NRA dinner during the campaign. Campaign officials were told in emails that, quote, Putin is deadly serious about building a good relationship with Mr. Trump and emails about, quote, cultivating a back channel to President Putin's Kremlin. Alexander Torshin, this Russian banker, is also a lifetime member of the NRA, even though Russia has no Second Amendment or anything like it. There have been reports of an FBI investigation about Russia using the NRA to funnel money to the Trump campaign. To give or receive foreign money for a U.S. political campaign is very illegal. With at least one investigation looming and its implications in the Trump-Russia case, the NRA now says it's re-examining its relationship with that Russian banker. Insiders at the NRA say it's lately been preparing for that investigation and that NRA officials are a little worried. Quoting a CNN source, true believers are getting very antsy. The National Rifle Association's annual convention is this weekend. Donald Trump and Mike Pence will be there to speak. It will be their first remarks to the NRA in a year. In that one year, there have already been deadly mass shootings at an awning factory in Orlando, leaving five dead, followed by 58 dead in Vegas, 26 dead at a Baptist church in Texas, four dead at a car wash in Pennsylvania, 17 dead at Stoneman Douglas High in Florida, and four more dead in the Waffle House shooting two weeks ago in Nashville. These will be Trump's and Pence's first remarks to that group since more than 100 gun deaths, and the first since Trump told lawmakers 
not to fear the NRA's perceived political power. Trump's past commitments to the NRA netted him $30 million in campaign contributions from the gun group and solidified his support among skeptical conservative voters. Vice President Mike Pence will speak to the gun lobby tomorrow, and even though Texas is an open carry state, NRA officials say guns will not be allowed at their events, much to the disappointment of some of the 80,000 people expected to attend this gathering in Dallas. Guns are not allowed whenever the Secret Service controls the area, as it does at any appearance by the president or vice president. The only good guys with guns during those parts of the NRA convention will be the ones who are paid to be there. The NRA has long argued that the more people with guns, the fewer people will die in an active shooter situation. But there will be no guns other than the hired ones. It's part of the NRA's argument for arming school teachers. So that convention rule has not set well with a number of NRA members. Many of the attendees were planning on going while packing heat. And it's downright hypocritical, according to students at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High in Parkland, Florida. They say schools should get the same protection as a gun convention. Quoting the chief strategist for March for Our Lives, a recent Stoneman Douglas graduate, you're telling me to make the VP safe. There aren't any weapons around, but when it comes to children, they want guns everywhere. Can someone explain this to me? Quoting Matt Deitch, it sounds like the NRA wants to protect people who help them sell guns and not kids. Quoting Parkland activist David Hogg, the NRA has evolved into such a hilarious parody of itself. Another Parkland activist is circulating a petition to get at least the Pence convention speech canceled. It's all about the good guys with guns theory. A self-described NRA member posted, makes our whole argument look foolish. Schools in over 100 districts of Arizona have been closed for a week as 50,000 teachers have again taken to the streets in their red T-shirts. Arizona teachers have already successfully scored a 20% raise, but now they want more money for the students and their classrooms. Per student spending in Arizona was cut 37% during the recession, and schools have fallen into disrepair. Even some kindergarten classes had to be cut. Teachers in Colorado are also asking for more money for schools, along with better pay in a housing market that's gotten more expensive. Colorado lawmakers have already pledged $425 million, but teachers say that's just a fraction of what had been cut in their state. Our lowest paid teachers, those in Oklahoma, marched 110 miles earlier this month to draw attention to their plight. Teachers have marched in West Virginia and Kentucky as well. On its face, it might seem like a nice gesture that the Trump administration's put off for 30 days the new import tariffs it's slapping on our allies in Canada, Europe, and Mexico. But in an art-of-the-deal move, Trump's hoping to negotiate better trade deals with those countries, and he wants more time to accomplish that. Uh, the administration would also like time to focus on an even more difficult trade negotiation with China. But our allies say they have no better deals to offer and that if the U.S. raises its tariffs on them, they'll raise their tariffs on the U.S. Besides, they say Trump's 10 and 25 percent tariffs on aluminum steel are in violation of international trade laws. And if our allies do retaliate, the prices you pay for nearly everything go up. The new U.S. tariffs were supposed to have gone into effect on Tuesday of this week. The White House waited until Monday night at 9 to say that it would wait another month. 
But our allies have responded just as firmly and say that Trump hasn't done them any favors with this delay, that he simply extended the instability he has created in the trade market. U.S. allies are upset enough about Trump's apparent plans to pull out of the Iran nuclear deal. Now this. The Trump administration was hoping the 30-day delay would make the allies less uncomfortable. It hasn't. The end of war declared the leaders of North and South Korea after an historic meeting during an historic visit. The end of a war that has lasted 65 years, we would all hope. North Korean leader Kim Jong-un has also declared his commitment to full denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, ending more than a year of worry, we would hope. Together, the two Korean leaders hope to get the United States to declare an official end to the war in which my father served in the early 1950s. The U.S. fighting there ended in 53 with an armistice, but technically, officially, the war is still on. This is the first time that a North Korean leader had even set foot in South Korea since what had simply been Korea was divided nearly 60 years ago. Sanctions against the North have hurt the country badly, and Kim wants out from under them. But also, Kim Jong-un had finally gotten what he and his father wanted, recognition, believing they had to pursue nuclear weapons just to achieve that. I came here to put an end to the history of confrontation, said Kim, less than a year after saying he'd turn the U.S. into a sea of fire. Kim's already made symbolic opening moves by stopping the nuclear testing and the missile test and closing a nuclear facility. Kim's also moved three arrested Americans from their prison cells to hotel rooms as the U.S. works for their release. Kim's people are already talking about opening up North Korea for tourism. Before doing any more, however, Kim wants assurances that the United States will not force a change in the North Korean regime, an interest expressed by Trump's new national security advisor, John Bolton. But right now, Kim wants the sanctions against him by the U.S., China, and other countries to end. The devil, of course, is in the details, and even Trump, eager to put this notch in his belt before the midterm elections, even Trump is being a little cautious. His meeting with Kim will either be late this month or early next and in the Korean demilitarized zone. Kim says he also wants to meet with the president of Japan and to normalize ties to that country. The secretary general of the United Nations now says he will take part in the peace process. From all corners, optimism and skepticism are shadow boxing. Trump is taking the credit. Trump supporters, including the president of South Korea, are talking about the Nobel Peace Prize for Trump in 2019, assuming he's still around to accept it. The crowd shouted Nobel at a Trump campaign rally in Michigan over the weekend. At that rally, Trump said he, quote, had everything to do with the hopeful situation in Korea. Former NBA star Dennis Rodman says he should get some credit, too. Meanwhile, back in the Middle East, Israel's Benjamin Netanyahu is accusing Iran of lying for years about its nuclear program. Just 12 days before Trump would decide whether to pull the U.S. out of the Iran nuclear deal, Netanyahu wanted to build support for Trump's plans. Netanyahu showed documents from what he calls a secret warehouse in Tehran to try to support his claim. What Netanyahu did not show us was any evidence that Iran has done any of these things since the nuclear agreement took effect two years ago. And U.S. officials say Iran has complied with that agreement. And the world has mostly shrugged at Netanyahu's presentation since the Israeli leader presented no new information. 
Netanyahu's theatrical PowerPoint presentation, delivered in English, was for the world to see, but it was directed at an audience of one. Trump hasn't said what he'll actually decide by May 12th. He has said that when the Iran agreement expires in seven years, Iran would be free to make nuclear weapons again. It won't. That's not what the deal says. Seven years is like tomorrow, said Trump. It isn't. The White House staff, meanwhile, reacted to Netanyahu's presentation with a typographical error. And what's a typo or two between contentious world powers? Tuesday evening, the White House put out a statement saying, quote, Iran has a robust clandestine nuclear weapons program. As 9.30 p.m. approached, the White House had corrected that statement to say that Iran had a robust clandestine nuclear weapons program. A National Security Council spokesman says it was a clerical error. During his recent visit, French President Emmanuel Macron tried to get Trump to simply try to improve the existing agreement with Iran rather than throw it out completely. Macron was speaking on behalf of nearly the entire free world when he said that. Macron waited until after he'd left the U.S. to say that its current constantly changing policies are insane. Macron proposed that Trump wants to rework the Iran deal to score a political victory domestically. Macron said it would be a big risk for the U.S. to pull out of the deal, quoting him, very insane. Allies worry that if the U.S. backs out of this agreement, can any agreement with the U.S. be trusted to last? Will anyone make an agreement with the U.S. ever again? Americans worry about that, too. President Macron, meanwhile, will know in a week or so whether the handshakes and hugs and hand-holding and kissing were worth the trip. Germany's Angela Merkel is in Washington this week with a whole lot less affection. Your caravan has arrived, sir. The caravan of people running from violence in Honduras hoping for asylum in the U.S. has arrived at our southern border. It's the caravan Trump's been warning his followers about. Some 130 people whose family members have been killed by gangs in Honduras, people who fear for their own lives, are in Tijuana, Mexico this week, waiting to be processed and letting a pregnant woman go to the front of the line. They sleep each night in a camp called Friendship Park. It's a nice park, a nice camp, while they wait to be seen by U.S. Customs and Border Protection agents. There are 200 more asylum seekers on their way to the border. The Trump administration has threatened to arrest them even though seeking asylum is not a crime. In the words of House Democrat Zoe Lofgren, people who have a legitimate fear of persecution have a right under U.S. law to present their case. That's not a violation of immigration law, she adds. That's part of the immigration law. A few of those seeking asylum in the U.S. have climbed the border fence and have been arrested. Nearly three dozen people so far have been allowed to enter the United States and apply for asylum. Mostly just stories of hope, achievement, and laughter. You know, the rest of the news in the third and final segment. Up next. 40 is the new 30, orange is the new black, and listening is the new reading. And audible.com is your best online audiobook store with the biggest selection of digital audiobooks. Best sellers including Fire and Fury, Russian Roulette, and of course, James Comey's A Higher Loyalty. You don't even need an internet connection to do your listening, so you can listen anywhere. And you won't lose your place even if you switch devices. There's no equipment to buy. Just download the free app. And if you don't like a book, you can exchange it for another free. 
Now, as a member, you'll get a credit each month for a free book, any book, regardless of its price, and exclusive to members' discounts of 30%. Membership's just $14.95 a month. It's a library about for what you'd pay for a book. And you can cancel anytime and keep your books. And because Audible.com is an Amazon company, you can count on privacy, security, and satisfaction. You can sign up securely with your Amazon account. Even if you shop Amazon somewhere else, this podcast gets a small commission if you join Audible through the link at buzzburbank.com. Just click the Audible link on my webpage just below the list of my recent shows. Thank you for choosing Audible through me and for supporting this free news through the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. The U.S. is at war with California and not just over immigration. And California is shooting back over the Trump administration's new car emission rules. The Trump EPA, dutifully led by the aforementioned Scott Pruitt, is rolling back Obama administration standards and doing that now threatens to split the American car industry into two parts, one for California, where they sell a lot of cars, and one for the rest of the country. California, which has had its share of smog and pollution, wants cleaner air, even if that's not what the Trump-Pruitt EPA wants for the nation. What gives California this right? The Clean Air Act of 1970 that gave the Golden State the authority to set its own clean air rules. The Trump administration wants to strip California of that authority. It was only when Obama brought the rest of the country closer to California's standards that California did agree to merge with the federal rules in the first place. Now that Trump is changing the rules, California is suing to prevent the change and, in the meantime, sticking to setting its own standards. California is joined in its lawsuit by Connecticut, Delaware, D.C., Illinois, Iowa, Maine, Maryland, Massachusetts, Minnesota, New Jersey, New York, Oregon, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, Vermont, Virginia, and Washington State. It's only in California that the governor is calling the EPA administrator outlaw Pruitt. On a more positive note for the planet, Australia has pledged to spend $380 million on protecting a wonder of the world through scientific research. Australia's Great Barrier Reef is the world's biggest gathering of coral. Two million people from around the planet come every year just to see it. The reef is home to 400 kinds of colorful coral and 1,500 species of sea creatures. Fish rely on coral because that's where they find their food. The Great Barrier Reef supports around 64,000 jobs in Australia and generates $6 billion a year to its economy. But coral bleaching, caused by climate change, is wrecking this amazingly beautiful work of nature with warmer, more acidic water. Also by a poisonous starfish that's been eating the beautiful coral. Maybe Australia's made this commitment because of its importance to its economy. Maybe also because it's a sight to behold and it needs our help. You should always wear sunscreen outdoors unless you're swimming in a coral reef. Hawaii is about to be the first government to ban sunscreens that contain chemicals harmful to coral. And it's not just sunscreen. More than 3,500 skincare products contain oxybenzone, which weakens the coral's ability to resist the aforementioned bleaching. Dermatologists are nervous about banning something. They've been trying to get people to use more in the battle against skin cancers. The Hawaii ban goes into effect January 1st, 2021, theoretically giving retailers time to sell their old stock and giving sunscreen makers time to come up with safer ingredients.
The contaminated romaine lettuce problem has spread more than 100 people in about half our states have now fallen ill after eating romaine contaminated with the E. coli bacteria. E. coli poisoning can be fatal, and now at least one person has died from this. In the past week, the wave of illness swept into Mississippi, Tennessee, and Wisconsin. People are still being warned not to eat any romaine lettuce in any form unless they know for a fact it's not from the Yuma, Arizona area. The brutal flu season has finally mostly waned. and Bill Gates wants to end this annual flu madness over which vaccines are best for which strains of influenza. The Microsoft billionaire told a New England Journal of Medicine gathering that the foundation led by himself and his wife, Melissa Gates, stands ready to help. He told the medical writers the Gates Foundation has teamed with another high-dollar, high-tech couple to provide a $12 million grant for the researcher or research team that can find a universal flu vaccine, one that covers every strain. That other couple is Google co-founder Larry Page and his wife Lucy. Individual grants will range from a quarter million to $2 million over the next two years. The $10 million that remains in the fund is for animal studies once researchers find something promising. Bill Gates is worried about the next deadly flu pandemic, and he thinks the development of an early warning system would help. But quoting Gates, I'm a super optimist pointing out that life keeps getting better for most people in the world. In the meantime, our big concerns are romaine lettuce and bugs. The CDC says illnesses from mosquito, tick, and flea bites have tripled in the past dozen years. Zika led the way, followed by dengue fever and more than a dozen others. More than 96,000 people were infected in 2016, three times the number in 2004. And in their study, scientists have found new, previously undiscovered diseases. They put the blame for all this on longer summers and warmer temperatures. They put the blame on climate change. In the meantime, they recommend you protect yourself from mosquitoes, fleas, and ticks. We may be saying goodbye to the name Sprint. If Sprint and T-Mobile merge, as they hope to do, they will be together known as T-Mobile. It would move T-Mobile and Sprint from fourth and fifth biggest to second, pushing AT&T down to third place. Verizon is and would still be the biggest. But the merger would leave consumers with just three major choices, which would likely mean higher prices, especially for new incoming services, and there will be new services. The merger could be tricky if the public and government regulators are in no mood for a merger. But the entire industry is scrambling to introduce a new 5G technology network, and the new T-Mobile hopes to convince the Trump administration it's already prepared to compete in that market. This was the week that we learned that the Ford Motor Company is getting out of the car business, at least here in the U.S., where we prefer SUVs and pickup trucks. Ford says, we like sitting up high, having lots of space, and being able to haul stuff. So Ford says it's going where the real money is, trucks and SUVs and crossovers. Except for the sacred Mustang, the sedans are history. No more Fiesta, Focus, or Fusion. No more Ford Taurus. All going the way of the Probe, the Edsel, and the Model T. This was also the week we saw a once-loved comedian fall to a bitter low. A suburban Philadelphia jury found Bill Cosby guilty of three felony counts of aggravated indecent assault for drugging and sexually molesting Andrea Constand 14 years ago in the home Cosby shared with his wife Camille. The elderly Cosby faces life in prison considering he's facing a combined sentence of 10 years. 
Pending sentencing, Cosby's also confined to his home and can leave only with a GPS ankle bracelet. As the owner of a private plane, Cosby's considered a flight risk. While Cosby was quiet during the sentencing, he stood up and shouted a profane insult at the prosecutor who had asked that Cosby's bail be revoked. The jury says it was Cosby's own words that had convicted him, words from a deposition he'd given in another case years ago under what he thought was a promise not to use his testimony against him later. On those grounds, Cosby's lawyers plan to appeal. Meanwhile, the universities of Notre Dame, Carnegie Mellon, and Cosby's beloved Temple have now stripped him of the honorary degrees they had awarded him years ago. The Television Academy has removed Cosby's name from its list of honorees and has removed his exhibit from its museum. Bill Cosby is 80 years old. The days of Cliff Huxtable and Fat Albert are gone. Gone also is the Boy Scouts of America. The BSA has announced that now that it's accepting girls, it shall henceforth be known as Scouting BSA. The theme of Scouting's new inclusive recruitment advertising is Scout Me In. Because bear cubs can be of either gender, Cub Scouts will still be Cub Scouts. Girls can begin joining Scouting BSA this summer. BSA's membership has fallen by nearly half from its golden years. It lost a third of a million members just in the past five years. The Girl Scouts organization has also lost members and may lose more now that there's a co-ed scouting program. Not gone, but in trouble, is the Gibson Guitar Company. The company that makes Gibsons and Les Pauls and Baldwin pianos has filed for bankruptcy protection. These are the guitars played by B.B. King, Elvis, George Harrison, Jimmy Page, David Bowie, and Keith Richards, to name only a few. Gibsons were born to rock, Slash swears by them. Founded in 1894, Gibson is a half billion dollars in debt now, but says it wants to keep making musical instruments if it can be protected from its debts. Sometimes things that go away come back. A dancer who calls herself Dita Von Tees has kicked off a nationwide tour of her new burlesque show. She says it will be the biggest in burlesque history, opening last night at the Jackie Gleason Theater at the Fillmore in Miami Beach. Dita Von Tees will be joined by a handful of other dancers on this tour, including Gina Genevieve and Ginger Valentine, and of course, a burlesque-style comedian. Von Tees says the Copper Coop Tour is a very old form of exotic dancing designed for a modern audience. The latest Avengers movie won the box office this week across North America. It opened with a $250 million weekend, breaking a record set by Star Wars The Force Awakens in 2015. A Quiet Place fell to second place, followed by Amy Schumer's I Feel Pretty, Rampage, and Black Panther still in the top five. For previews, theaters, showtimes, and tickets, please click my Fandango link at buzzburbank.com. Why did the chicken cross the road successfully? Because it got law enforcement assistance. An Oklahoma City police officer spotted a chicken trying to cross at 10th and Portland. He captured the chicken to rescue it from traffic, quoting the Oklahoma officer, you know, just because we're in the big city don't mean we don't have small town problems. A cop in Ontario found a pig in the street. He was worried not just about the safety of the pig, but the safety of drivers. He tried to catch this 200-pound pig, and he did. Wrestling it into the patrol vehicle was the hard part. Plus, the pig was covered with mud, and quickly so was the officer, which is what happens when you wrestle with a pig. Horse walks into a barn and says to its owner, why the long face? 
A new series of experiments at universities in England show that horses recognize human faces and learn to read their facial expressions, and they remember it all. Horses were shown pictures of people who were smiling and people who were frowning. Later, when the animals met those people in real life, the horses were friendly with those who had smiled for the camera and standoffish with those who had frowned in their photos. And, say the researchers, if a horse sees that person in an up or down mood earlier in the day, the horse adjusts its behavior accordingly later in the day. Quoting one researcher, this is the first time any mammal has been shown to have this particular ability. Any mammal, ever. Don't look so surprised. Might spook the horse. In passings this week, the world's oldest spider has died. A team of Australian scientists have been following spider number 16 since shortly after its birth in 1974, a female trapdoor spider that lived in a burrow. They were watching because the previous record holder was a 28-year-old Mexican tarantula. As for the passing of number 16, one researcher said, we're really miserable about it. We were hoping she'd make it to 50. But 16 died this week at 43 years of age from a wasp sting. A giant duck got loose in Des Moines, Iowa this past week. The big inflatable duck was an attraction for a youth emergency shelter until the wind caught it, creating a new emergency. The giant inflatable duck bounced about two blocks away where it was recovered without injury to either humans or the duck. And you know what else is big? An 80-foot wave. It's about the height of an eight-story building. It seems even taller if you're a surfer. Dateline, Portugal, where a surfer has set the Guinness record for a ride on the biggest wave, 80 feet. The previous record had been set by an American surfer who rode a 70-foot wave off Maui's North Shore. Marathon organizers in Bern, Texas, have found a way to get runners to show up. In fact, organizers shocked that so many people got off their couches to sign up. So many have signed up for this marathon that registration is now closed. What's their secret? The run this Saturday is aimed at underachievers. It's a half K. Well, really, it's just under a third of a mile, and there's a place along the route to stop for coffee and donuts. Organizers raising money for a local charity are promising those who make it to the finish line will get, quote, 10 minutes of glory. Participants will each receive a pretentious car window sticker at the finish line. The retail business has become so self-serve these days that apparently now includes paging. In Kentucky, a Walmart customer, tired of waiting for assistance at the sporting goods desk, turned around the phone on the counter and pushed the button for store page. Customer needs assistance in sporting goods, please, he announced, adding, I'm the customer. And finally... It was easy to find a motorcycle that had been stolen in Springfield, Oregon. The suspect was a convicted felon with an outstanding warrant for a parole violation. An officer had spotted the ex-con in an Albertson's parking lot. The suspect jumped onto a Ducati motorcycle and took off, chased at speeds of up to 100 miles an hour. But the bike and its rogue rider were easy to find later. The bike had an expired tag from North Dakota. Quoting the arresting officer, since these guys make license plates in prison, you'd think you'd be a little more creative. The license plate read, X-Felon. 
I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and for supporting my sponsors at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by the Realm Network.